Hello, Great Women Artists listeners. It's Katie here. And just before we get into today's episode with the brilliant Antonia Sharon, I have some very exciting news. I have written a book which is out this September. The Story of Art Without Men aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. It is available to pre-order now from Waterstones and more, and I have linked to the book in the show notes. But in this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the past two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection hand-cast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by Rosh Matali to guide her through a dark time. Each piece is a story and invites you to unlock your own. As part of London Craft Week this week, Alighieri have opened up their Hatton Garden studio and invite you to step into the Museum of Alighieri. Discover the process behind each modern heirloom. The exhibition will showcase Roche's design process from the initial design inspiration to final talisman, using sustainable and ethical practice each step of the way. Visit the museum gift shop for exclusive memorabilia, enjoy an aperitivo in the courtyard and learn more about how the brand make their jewellery in the oldest jewellery district, Hatton Garden. The Museum of Alighieri is open until the 15th of May. Book your space today at londoncraftweek.com or on alighieri.com. If you are not in London, you can discover the process online by watching Making of Film on alighieri.com now, where you can also visit the full collection at alighieri.com. And just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the very brilliant young painter Antonia Showering. Acclaimed for her richly layered paintings of family, friends and more that occupy spaces between reality and surreality, memory and imagination. Antonia Showering paints her subjects full of conviction and full of emotion. Layered with narratives, her paintings can appear at once haunting and ethereal, ghoulish yet protective, and although they are personal to her, they can speak for us all. Infused with both an acidic and muted colour palette, with thick impasto and washy strokes, Antonia's paintings deal with universal subjects on a personal level. Speaking about the canvas, she has said, I see the canvas as a physical space where feelings of belonging or displacement, love or loneliness, intergenerational memory, superstitions and regrets can be turned into something visual and shared with the viewer. Born in London and raised in Somerset to an English father and Swiss Chinese mother, Antonia's upbringing, family and heritage play central roles in her work. 
having completed her foundation year at Chelsea, her BA at City and Guilds of London Art School, and then her MFA at the Slade School of Art, Antonia, in just a few years, has become one of the most exciting young painters of her generation. Featured in exhibitions at Stephen Friedman Gallery and TJ Bolting, new contemporaries, and of course, the great women artist residency at Palazzo Monti. Antonia recently had her first solo exhibition at Timothy Taylor, which was met with acclaim. Antonia Showering, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you for that introduction. I'm feeling excited about doing this podcast with you. Fantastic. So thank you so much for coming on. It's such a pleasure to be recording it here in your studio today, not just because you are one of my favourite painters, but because you are a great friend who I have also been lucky enough to work with on countless occasions. I remember the first time I saw your work, it was online and I thought you were in the Slade MFA show. So I ran down to see it. But in fact, you were not graduating that year, but the following one. And I think I then tracked you down and within 24 hours was at your studio, which at the time was the spare bedroom in your grandma's house. And I just remember having this overwhelming and visceral feeling. It was electric. It felt familiar. It was these layers of colours that cave in on each other with hints of figuration and just painted with such vigour and emotion. And I still have it today looking at your paintings right now. I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to feel in front of your paintings? I can remember when you came very clearly too. <laughs> and we'd only emailed and I didn't know what you looked like. And I was imagining to open the door to... Definitely didn't imagine someone that was going to be in their early 20s. <laughs> I got such a shock. But I think it's important that people feel something from my work. I think when I'm looking at a show or if I'm looking at artwork, the two things that I'm searching for is if it makes me want to paint and if I want to run back to the studio after seeing it or if it moves me in some way and I hope that my work can do that especially because they are often driven by different feelings and emotions so I'd like people to maybe look at the work and feel part of something you might have experienced a fleeting thought that you're not able to use words with and then it's through an image that perhaps you'll feel less alone or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, last night we were talking about this idea of like finding solace in images and sort of almost feeling that images can be your friends or they can be a, your companions. And when I look around your studio now, I mean, the work is from the last few years, but in a way it even feels like something that has been in my dream or something. That even though I'm, these are not my paintings, they speak to me and I know that so many other people feel that way because they feel personal. No, they're definitely deeply personal. But it's important that the characters aren't overly specific. I think that I want there to be ambiguity in the relationships between the figures. I think that is extremely important that my relationship with the subject, it doesn't really matter if it's drawn from my younger brother. It's just about human interactions and human connections and so there's often a blurry hazy ambiguous narrative or relationship between the figures I hope anyway <laughs> totally there is there is completely that and we've all been in those situations as well and I look around and I see you know empty jars of water and all these different palettes I mean what attracts you to the medium of paint because you are such a painter. I am such a painter. A painter's I painter. I <laughs> am obsessed. But it's not just any painter. It has to be oil. I think that there's some kind of magical quality in oil. I really, really deeply believe that. There's something that happens when you're painting. I get it maybe around three or four in the morning 
when you're in that delirium of tiredness and knowing that it's probably time to go home, but just giving it that extra few hours push. And then you go into this trance-like state and because oil is so forgiving and you can rub back, it takes a long time to dry. And so you're allowed time to sit with decisions. And I'm very indecisive in all walks of life. And I think that (laughs) there's no other paint, but the smell of oil as well and how you can keep stacking and stacking for probably ever but you can keep going at an image that you maybe think is too stationary or stuck and static and it's never ruined painting when you're using oil I don't think I just adore it so yeah between three and four in the morning I'll stand back and there'll be some imagery that's sort of emerging from the paint that I've half decided to be there, but also it comes through chance with the drips and the splashes. And I'll stand back and there'll be something that is so relevant and meaningful to what I've been thinking about around that time. It feels like oil helps you tap into something that you I don't have access to with any other form of art. Totally. And also when I look at your paintings, you know, there are areas of kind of scratchiness, but there's also areas of like washiness and also thick and pasto. Like that amazing painter of yours that you made for White Cube a few years ago called The Teacher. And you like painted like the paint brush and it was something like the paint came alive as as its own character. I mean, what do you think of sort of the potentials of oil paint? Because you use it in so many different ways. That painting, I remember, because it's a language, really. And I think that's why when you're coming towards the end of a show... Each painting is quicker to finish because it's as if you have a diary or a dictionary around the studio with all these different ways of expressing a line or a a way of depicting something. And so the teacher was towards the end of the White Cube introduction show. And I remember standing back and being so surprised at the painterly decisions that I was making and that thick impasto of the paint on the brush happened quite intuitively and once you make these intuitive decisions you then have to pick and choose what stays and so I think probably 40% of my time in the studio painting when I'm standing in front of a canvas I'm actually rubbing it back and so it's this sort of dance with the canvas and yourself and it's communicating with the canvas in a way that you're often not even looking at it in a figurative sense. And I'll squint my eyes and I'll be wanting to just make sure that there's harmony and balance and the colours are vibrating off each other in a way that sits right in my stomach. Totally. It's interesting you actually have such a reductive process in a way because when I look at your work, it almost feels so additive, like these layers and layers of memory and these layers of paint and they can be glittering in times or they can be washy or I mean what is it about sort of overlaying I mean I've watched you I've been very lucky I've seen paintings in their sort of seed-like growth and then they sort of turn into something that is so unexpected. So unexpected I get surprised sometimes as well I think because my paintings are often drawn from memory or maybe desires or wants or regrets it's a quite a um ephemeral thing to be trying to harness onto a canvas and so often one image maybe doesn't feel like it's capturing that atmosphere enough and so I'll paint a particular composition and then this composition that goes on top of it is often related but there will only be traces of the painting from before or 
I kind of see it as if you're someone that sits with the painting long enough, you'll be rewarded with enough to be able to unpick the history of where the painting's been before. But this technique is called pentimento, from the Italian word to repent. Again, with that reductive quality of bringing things back. It's a really important way of trying to capture the fleeting nature of memory. And for me, I mean, your paintings occupy this liminal space between reality and surreality, the celestial and the terrestrial interior exterior, as though they are kind of the threshold between worlds. Where do you see your paintings set, if any? I think they're quite timeless. I don't think they're set in a particular moment. I think that the places have got quite a dreamlike quality because they are merging all these meaningful locations. And so there'll be three mountains that are often found in my paintings that are drawn from where my grandmother's from in Switzerland. And they'll sit alongside maybe a curve of a hill that resembles Glastonbury Tour from Somerset <laughs> or something. There'll be so many, I'll collage so many different meaningful places. But it's, again, more about me trying to implant a feeling rather than it being important for the viewer to know the specifics. It's more that I'll paint it and these places I have such a deep connection to. I hope that knowing where they are or not knowing where they are isn't important. It's more that you can sense that it means something in the paint. Yeah, because I mean, it's funny because obviously I know your work so well. But what I find fascinating is the fact that I've actually never been to like the places where you're from in Switzerland. And for you me, have been to Somerset now, I have, I have been to Somerset, yes. But for me, it feels like this sort of dream world in a way, but it also kind of feels familiar. It's almost like these kind of mountains are inside my head anyway. And actually, it was funny when I was in California at the end of last year, I looked out the window in the car and I just texted you immediately because I was like, Antonia, it's like being in one of your paintings. It was so visceral. And actually, when I see nature now, I see your paintings. I actually <laughs> weirdly had that last summer when I was on an island in Greece called Amorgos and we were on a long bike ride. And I remember stopping and having to put both the brakes on and it was Faded Kiss. Yeah. It was the landscape from Faded Kiss. Everything about it, it was so strange to actually feel as if I, I felt like I was walking into one of the paintings. But mountains, I think, also are quite symbolic for me. And I think that sometimes the peaks and troughs of it remind me slightly of a lifeline. Yeah, totally. And also, when I was at the George O'Keefe exhibition as well, yeah. at the Pompidou, I was like, oh my goodness, Antonio, this George O'Keefe is so, even though you'd never seen the never painting seen before. It. But in a way, I but love the that. The, totally. And I love that mountains almost can become this universal symbol. I definitely think that you start building these relationships with them, maybe. As children, there were three mountains, very specific looking, that faced the village we were from. And... We sort of bagsied them as children. I can remember my eldest brother got the stereotypical mountain. I got this long, flat one. And then my younger brother obviously wasn't strong enough. So he had this <laughs> tiny little one that was behind. Yeah. But I've found that these mountains have witnessed so much throughout my life. Because I go back to Switzerland to see family. But during these trips, there's often a lot that's happened and changed. And it feels as if these three mountains are the only things that remain a constant when there's so much with life and people that have left us and people that have joined us and generations and us moving along the conveyor belt of life it feels that these mountains are the only things that stay the same I now haven't seen them 
since 2019. I've dreamt about them for a long time during these last few years, but I'm I'm now almost frightened about the emotional effect that I'm going to have when I'm in front of them. They feel like an anchor in my life in a way. And also I love the fact that they are with nature and like trees grow on them as well and trees die and actually they symbolise so much in that sense. And actually when you go back next, you know, there might be a whole new sort of plant that's erupted in there or something. (laughs) Imagine. But I think Cezanne had a similar relationship in Aix-en-Provence. I think he painted obsessively. And mountains envelop us. They are the highest points of the world. And so there's this idea that the gateway to like the afterlife or something. But I want to go back to your beginnings as well. You were born in 1991 in London. Tell us about your upbringing. Was art always present in your life? Did you always want to be an artist? Yeah, I haven't really known my life without art. I was really lucky that my grandmother taught history of art for many, many years. And she married my grandfather, who was an architect. And then my mother trained as an architect. My uncle's an architect. So drawing was very huge part of my childhood and I think having two brothers that were super close it left quite a lot of space for me to keep myself occupied in other ways and I think it was through drawing that I felt not alone I I would sit in my grandfather's office and he had this uh, wonderful table that I would sit beside him and draw for hours while he would be doing his his plans and then at school in year six I had this art teacher called Mrs Burnham. I tracked her down recently. This is when I was in New Contemporaries and I sent her an invitation because I was really excited. I still am really excited to have been in that show and I had a painting in South London Gallery. And then she sent me a photograph of herself in front of my painting there because she wow. happened to live nearby. It was, I found that she was a really important part in my love of art because she recognised that there was maybe a joy that I got from it. I can remember those classes like they were yesterday. But it is amazing when teachers can kind of give you permission to do something, especially when a career seems so unlikely that it would ever happen. And you're like, no, but I love this subject so much. I want to do it forever. I just want to carry on doing it. I mean, I've literally made a job out of just sitting in an art history class every day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's strange because you think back to an 11-year-old and these teachers are changing lives at age 11. Age 11? And obviously your grandparents were Swiss and Chinese. I mean, how do you draw from this? Because I know that like heritage is very important in your work. I think that having several places that you're from as a teenager was quite challenging at points. And it definitely made me question my identity. I think that maybe the reason why I create these worlds that make complete sense to where I'm from, maybe. And so the figures sit in these landscapes that inhabit so many different places in the world. And I think that the teacher that we were talking about earlier it is actually of my Chinese grandfather and it's of that memory of me sitting with him drawing at his desk. And it felt that with the plethora of paint that's falling into the sketchbook below that there's almost a way of communicating through paint with him in a really loose way but I sometimes feel because he's not with us anymore but I sometimes feel whilst I'm painting that there's a sort of closeness to him. Also you're preserving that memory forever and it is sort of swept up in a dreamlike palette in place. It is it's holding on to things before they slip into the abyss of 
being forgotten. Yeah, I'm, I'm super sentimental, as you know. And so I think holding on to these memories, it doesn't need to be a moment that's existed. It can actually also be a deep want. And so that will come into my work. Like 27, the painting with the two figures holding hands. Yeah. I remember struggling at where the hands were being held. And so sometimes I'll video myself as both of the characters. I remember it being the loneliest sensation of having to be both of the hands. Yeah. Walking from one part of the studio with my hand open and then the other hand. But weirdly, four months after I made it, I was speaking to someone on the phone called my mum. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and I told her that I'd started seeing someone that loved holding hands and she said hang on what was 27 and we looked at the painting and it looked exactly like this man it's so weird to be able to describe it but you've seen 27 yeah. the figure the hair the dynamic it's totally connected to this person that I had a relationship with but it's amazing how paintings can I don't know, or like books or whatever, like characters, they can speak to you in such a way that you didn't even realise. And when you revisit them at different parts of your life, definitely even your work, when I've revisited it from being like 23 to 28 now, I mean, like a lot has happened in my life. And actually, they start to take on new personas or that new feelings for me. It's, it's kind of incredible. They do. They sort of morph into different meanings, definitely, the characters that are in the work, not just in my work, but in other people's works as well. We were talking about after going to see the Marlene Duma in Venice just now, about how these paintings, we've seen them at such poignant times in our lives. And it feels almost as if it's a mirror or something that you're reminded of the time that's passed in between. And they do start feeling like old friends. There's a familiarity. It's really strange seeing the painter by Marlene Duma again after her Tate Britain show. And what you look at the child and what you see. I think I probably looked at that painting and I saw myself as the child, whereas seven years later you're maybe thinking more into motherhood or something. It's strange. Yeah, and also I think with your work and Marlene Duma's work, they are so in flux as well. I mean, it's like the surface is moving. The way that she plays with the human form, but also paint and... This idea of liquid, I mean, I find it fascinating your use of water in your work as well. I mean, it is as though it's this constant stream. And yes, you look at it in different times of your life, but also the surface is constantly moving. Yeah, water does come into my work a lot. It seems to be this recurring motif that I think maybe when you think about water, the language you use is quite connected to memory and thought with reflection. It's a sort of sensory place. And then when you see adults getting into water as well they become so vulnerable and silly almost when they take off all their clothes and splashing around you kind of <laughs> get a hint of what they were once like as a yeah. child so I'm fascinated between 2010 and 2011 you were at Chelsea and then you went to City and Guilds to do your BA I mean was this when you really honed your artistic language City and Guilds was really formative for my art career because the teachers are all practising artists, as, as they are in all art schools. But the teachers here feel so passionate about what it is that they do. And they're all great, dear, old, old friends. And you get excited about being part of that. 
And I can remember Reese Jones, one of the art tutors, took us to a studio off Hoxton Square. I think his name was Peter Ashton Jones. He took us to his studio and he was in there with his dog. And I remember just thinking, you can do this for a living. Oh my God, sign me up. How can I do this? This is the dream. <laughs> it was incredible. It was, it, I didn't know that you could actually be on your own with a dog painting all day with music. And that is your occupation is city and guilds definitely was a place that tutors made you believe in yourself and there have been some great people coming out of there recently i think it's because they give you a confidence and a belief and then the slade was really useful to go for two years i loved my time at the slade and i met some brilliant people that were in my year really brilliant people who i've stayed in touch with and i can actually see directly into one of their studios from here severe mitzolas and I found my time at the Slade was really good critically to be able to understand why it is that you're painting particular images. It definitely pushed you and it made you more aware from a conceptual point of view. And I loved being able to walk up the same staircase that all of the Bloomsbury group did. It hasn't changed. just felt so magical to think of all the ghosts of previous artists that have worked there and you can still feel it it's got such a history at that school I love that when you go up that sort of central staircase in stage but the sort of indents of the shoes and where the feet once stepped and you think of Gwen John Eileen Agar Paula Rago Paula, Paula Rago yeah. I mean literally how inc- I love Celia Paul Celia Paul and the sort of generations and the sort of legacies of these people and the generations that they influence like the conversation between Gwen John and Celia Paul and now you you know it's mm. You're entering into that dialogue. Totally. You are aware of that. I I remember loving the way that the studios felt as if they had never changed. And what is it that draws you to the Bloomsbury group? I was at City and Guilds and I was with my friend Ben on a bus from Streatham to Kennington to City and Guilds. And he got off the bus and said, shall you come into this furniture shop? And I went in and there was this exact cupboard and he said do you want it and I said I don't do I need it and then he bought it and put it in my studio and told me to paint it and it opened my eyes I always thought paint was limited to paper or canvas and it was then that I started painting on chairs and I sort of realized that it could extend to anything their life lifestyles as much as the way they create these homes that everywhere you look has been touched by an artist and going to Charleston a few years ago it felt like stepping into a dream almost you're now trustee (laughs) (laughs) I am yes it's a great advert but no I mean when you go to Charleston I mean you go down that road and it is like entering this dream world and you can imagine Vanessa Bell sort of pottering around and going up into the attic and Duncan Grant being in his study and, and like sort of painting the bath. I mean, it's just so imaginative. Painting, painting the fireplace. Yes. And you imagine them being in that studio and being also just want to be enveloped by paint everywhere you look. And their souls come to life in them. I and mean, you can imagine the ghost of Vanessa Bell. It's like you walk in and she could be sitting there. Absolutely could be. And then when you graduated in 2018... Some of the work you made around this time includes one of my favourite paintings of yours, which is Inside Out, which is of your brother Keith. And (laughs) you've been in a number of my exhibitions, but 
One of them was called In the Company of, and I paired your work with Alice Neal. Yes. Should we talk about Alice Neal? Shall we talk about Alice Neal? <laughs> we bonded over Alice Neal. I remember coming to your Nona's house. Our initial studio visit. Why Alice Neal for you? It's everything about Alice Neal. It's the way that she uses colour. It's her life, the struggles that she had, the people that she chose to paint, and how subtle she is and clever she is in saying something about the subjects without saying it in a really direct way. I think she did a painting of someone holding a child that there's just this little nuance of how the mother was holding the neck of the child that potentially insinuated that she wasn't as capable or something. It's, it's how she captures people and how she captures relationships. What is it that you love about Alice? It's the truth. It's like she just gets it and she's painted a picture of the 20th century, really, and the people who lived it. And it doesn't really matter who you were. You could be Andy Warhol or you could be her landlord's son. And it doesn't matter because the fact that the world is made up of all these people. And I find it fascinating that you like her because in a way, your work is actually very different. You kind of paint memories and liminal spaces and she's much more direct. But I love that you take from her because also she captures the fleeting moment as well. She captures what it is like to sit in front of her for a second and who that person is right there, right then. And I love when she paints people throughout her life. So for example, she painted her granddaughter Olivia lots of times or her son and she paints the same people. And actually I think that's where probably you come into it as well because you paint the same people. And then when she paints people throughout their life, she evolves as a person and also they evolve and she captures that. I mean, so much of your work is based around your family and people who mean so much to you. Why does family mean so much to you to integrate into your painting? Inside out, I had to paint. I remember when my niece was born, it was so wild to think that we were no longer the youngest generations, that my parents were now grandparents, that my brother was a father. I needed to make sense of it. And actually, I struggled quite a lot painting the newborn baby's face because there's such purity in it that to throw splashes on and to rub into it and to load too much paint on felt difficult. But what I think with Inside Out is that it's also not just my brother and niece. It's really important that when you look at the painting, you can see that it's a relationship that we've all witnessed at some point, whether it's on the tube or walking in a park or from your own family. But it's a father holding a child. And the expression in his face, the expression in the child's face, and the way the hand's holding on to the baby. It's a relationship that we can all take something from, I hope. I hope that you will look at it and not just see Keith and his baby. You'll look at it and you'll see beyond that. And it's, it is about human connection and these universal moments that we witness in life. Absolutely. And I love how you have the mountains in the back as if the three mountains will never be the same as well. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> but also I love with your work... You know, I think you can take so many different emotions from it. And I think that with Alice Neal as well, the way that she kind of accentuates like the red on the ear or the red on the hand. I love how every time I revisit one of your works, I bring my life to it in a different way. The fact that it can elicit 
so many different emotions. Like oh, with really keeping his baby, he can feel, he can look affectionate, but he can also look really nervous. You know, the baby can look beautiful, but can also look scary. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah, that constant yeah. teetering of the contradictions in a way. Yeah. And not sitting in one specific place. And that, I think, leaves a looseness that when you return to the painting, hopefully you will maybe feel different emotions or different, have different readings when you're looking back at it at different points in your emotional state. Also, you've not just looked at certain people in your family, but a lot of your work has actually family as a composition. And when I think about who has depicted whole families, I mean, you can literally trace it back to like the 17th century. Or you can look at, Paula Rago, who... I thought you were going to say Paula Modishenbecker. Yes, you can yeah. also look at Paula Modishenbecker. <laughs> but Paula Rago, for me, like the way that she captures a whole family dynamic, like the dancer or like when she's that sort of child woman's trying to dress her husband and he's like an animal and yeah. the tensions that can lie in a family. And you could even yeah. bring in like Carrie Mae Weems' like kitchen table series where it's about the relationships that we have on a day-to-day -day basis. Why are you drawn to the family as a composition? I think it's because it's our first experience of love. And I think that it's a complicated love. I think the mother-daughter relationship is so beautiful, but so charged as well. And I think that they're really complicated relationships, but essentially something that I feel so much from when I think about particular family members. And I think that when you get to your 30s, you start thinking about family and you see people around you that are starting their own new families or extending their families but I, I think that that's what sacrifice was kind of looking at and it was this mother-daughter relationship which has a woman standing with an apron cooking and it feels as if this adult character has sacrificed so much for the child that sat at the table I think that when you are coming to this point in your life, there are so many things that are to be taken into consideration. It just felt like when you get older, you start understanding what a parent has done for you. I mean, again, you sort of teeter on this idea that it also could be a really affectionate thing as well. But I love how much you like bring eggs into your painting as well and breakfast and the fact that there's this painting, Green Eggs, and it looks like the mother sort of cutting up mushrooms or eggs or something. It's like you can almost feel the scratchiness of the fork onto the plate. And there's that tension, yeah. whereas the rest of it feels so painterly in a way. I guess there's so much meaning or personal symbolism or maybe it's quite a universal symbolism that we attach to eggs, as well as it being this place that we can gather around and share this moment. Green Eggs also is a story, the Dr. Zeus story that... We were read as children. It was really strange hearing my father read it in the exact same way to my niece. It was as if no time had passed or something, except we were no longer the children. But personal hidden symbolism is all over my paintings. And I often don't go into exactly why. I, I don't describe why I choose these symbols, but they feel like totems to a time that I'll look at it and I'll be transported back and beds as well I mean there's this amazing painting that you made last year for the Timothy Taylor summer show called Lies Below and it's of two people in a bed and I love this idea of a bed and what a bed means why are you drawn to interiors and beds for your work with this bed I was thinking about 
how many people, if you go to someone's house and you see their bed, have slept there before. Lies Below started off with a painting of two characters in quite a soft embrace. And then when I was cycling along the canals to the studio, I remember thinking this painting started with a similar kind of feeling, which was this yearning sensation. But actually, I was thinking about that feeling of someone holding on to you that you actually don't want to be held by. And actually, that's even more lonely than being alone. And when I was struggling to paint where their hands were intertwined and the paint was getting messier and messier, I stood back and actually there was a facial expression that held exactly that feeling that I was thinking about on my bike ride. It looked like this person almost in despair or that's lying there and there's a veil of green over this, this canvas. But it feels like... The whole interior captures that sensation. And I love the tension. I mean, just last weekend, we went to Margate to see Tracy Emmons' show at the moment. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously, we're both such fans, but... Huge. <laughs> <laughs> but the way that she can capture, which you can do as well, and also, like, the book that you have that I lent you about seven years ago of Oscar Koshka, and he has this painting, The Tempest, and it's of him and his lover, Alma Mahler, and they're kind of swept up in this dream world. And she is holding on to him like an angel, but he's awake. And Tracy does that as well. She creates this tension between two figures that although they can feel like they are erupted and enveloped in the paint and everything is happening and you're full of movement, someone's also awake, I always think. Because actually, is there ever kind of harmony or balance between people? Yeah, it feels like we probably shift into both the characters in this endless pendulum. I think that relationships are so complex and it seems to be something that people have been drawing from a lot with these characters that have this, this slight off-kilter. I think that it's probably what makes us want to make art from mm. it. It's a feeling that we need to get out of us and onto a canvas. And how does Tracy Emmons' work speak to you? Tracy, I feel... It's maybe quite similar to Orbit that she's got this magical quality to her. Even how I first met her had this totally strange, magical thing where I was, I was in Thailand and my family asked me if I could have any artist, dead or alive, come to my private view. Who would I choose? And they probably expected me to say someone like Marlene Duma or someone like Paula Modishenbecker or... There's so many people and I decided that I would want to meet Tracy Emin. I'd been looking at quite a few of her interviews around that time and the way that she describes something that is said with such a personal... She's a great storyteller and it feels that she can describe these events that have happened to her in a way that actually you thought you were the only one that ever felt that way. And so the next day I'm in the sea and I look up and there's Tracy Emin. <laughs> <laughs> it was so strange. And we started talking. It was so magical and wonderful. It was as if I had wished her there. And we spoke in the water for a long time and then stayed in touch. And she did eventually come to my first ever show. You were there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like her way of describing her work, her titles of her work, 
and also the feeling that's in her work. She's so brave as well. I often make paintings that are drawn from these really sad places that I will never be able to use words. At this point, I'm definitely not as brave as Tracy is to be able to describe where these images come from. I think it's so admirable. And I I know that she's helped so many artists, not just artists, so many people through her art. She's a phenomenal woman and she's so clever and generous with her time and generous with everyone around her. Yeah. We were talking earlier about that idea of seeing paintings at different stages of your life. Sometimes I see one of her work and I'm like, you look into my soul as a painting. <laughs> yeah. It's sometimes like she does. She makes work that you didn't even know you were yeah. thinking yet. I think she is absolutely phenomenal. And your titles mean a lot to you. And I love how poetic you make your titles. I mean, do you ever write or do you ever write poetry or think about it? I definitely used to write a lot more. I think that looking back at diaries... I almost stopped writing because I realised that you're trapped in this like never-ending cycle where you kind of are repeating the same thing. You get the same with looking at old sketchbooks as well, where you think, I yesterday might think that I've come up with a completely innovative, brand new idea. And I look <laughs> at my sketchbook from City and Girls 2013 and I've thought it and I've spoken about it with a tutor. It's difficult to escape the person you are. And through writing, I'm definitely going to come back to it. And I, I definitely find writing... I've got this poem on my website that's about my uh, dog, Casper, which I think that is, um, it's a different way of expressing yourself and it's playful and it's through rhyme, you're sort of trapped and having to force yourself with coming out with different words. I think that perhaps I was braver a few years ago. When I look at some of the stories that I would write, there was maybe less inhibitions when I was writing. Do I write? Maybe I do write. Well, your titles are just so poetic. I, I was thinking that because I was looking at Tracy's titles. And Tracy's, Tracy's titles are like a poem when you put them together or just on their own, like a single sentence or phrase. Yeah. And also I love the ambiguity of your titles as well. They feel so open-ended like your paintings. Titling a work is challenging because you don't want to direct the viewer too far down a particular alley. You definitely want to give just enough information to direct the viewer somewhere but Mm. not with such specificity I think it's important that a title like single line it's so tragic and it does for me as the maker of the work take me back to all these different thoughts and moments that made me want to make that work and then the teacher as well which connects to my um, Chinese grandfather but actually for everyone else I'm sure they all have their own connection to that word and to the image itself and what I love is the way that hopefully my paintings can be held in people's mind and then I hope that there are endless versions in everyone's imaginations or memories of how the painting is because there's so much more that everyone else will attach to it that you'll project your histories your narrative your story onto this painting and it will hold very differently to how it is in my head. Totally. Antonia Showering, thank you so much for this incredible conversation. We have one more question because this is the Great Women oh, Artist Podcast. Well, oh, yeah, no. you have to answer it. <laughs> oh, God. As is the Great Women Artist Podcast, if there was one artist 
living or dead, who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Who I would like to chat to right now and talk about painting with. Well, actually, I know I met her yesterday, but I kind of want to carry on talking to Chantel Joffe. <laughs> <laughs> I only said hello, but I feel like there's so much to talk about with her. Alice Neal, endlessly, I'll take you with me. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Let's go meet Alice Neal. I know, Alice Neal. And what draws you to Alice Neal? It's her strength, that everything she went through. That is something that I find so inspirational. The suffering that she endured was unquantifiable. You can't even think about how much pain she would have had during her life. And actually, she kept painting throughout. And maybe I would ask her how. Or I'm sure her answer would be that if she didn't carry on, that it wouldn't have had the same outcome. But I don't think I'd ask her anything. I think I'd just watch her paint. Who, who would you have? Alice Neal, 100%. I'd be terrified 100%. of her though. Yeah. No question. Yes, obviously. I've met most of my heroes now. It's amazing. <laughs> Marlene Dumas, I'd love to meet. Oh my God, Marlene yeah. Dumas. I would love to meet Marlene Dumas. How did you feel I in front of her paintings last week? Goosebumps. Goosebumps from the beginning to the end. And hearing Caroline Bourgeois talk about the work, we were really lucky that we got to have a tour. Actually, you were invited and I just tagged along. <laughs> but um, I was extremely lucky to be able to hear Caroline talk about Marlene's process because Marlene does feel quite, I'm talking first name terms already, but she does feel <laughs> quite private yeah. in how she works and her process and the way that she paints at night, the way that she paints with the canvas starting flat on the floor, the way that she sometimes will have two years not painting if the feeling isn't there. And she'll have these hiatuses between making bodies of work. And it, I just connect so deeply. I'm not going to have two years not painting, but I know that feeling where you, you can't force yourself to make a painting. I can't force myself to make a painting. I'm really not a nine to five painter. And I really respect people that are, but I will need to paint when I've got that urgency to put something onto a canvas. Absolutely. Antonia Sharing, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Good questions, Katie. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the fantastic Antonia Sharing. What an incredible insight into her life and work. Thank you so much to my sound editor, Nardis Manelic, and research assistant, Viva Ruji. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. And we'll see you next week with a very special season finale episode with the brilliant Caroline Bourgeois or Marlene Dumas.